Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode we're continuing with Alain Collard's Around the World Alone and we're on chapter 5. Chapter 5 continued. Wednesday, January the 9th. The sea is very rough and I let us run before the wind throughout the night. At 10 in the morning I raised Grand Louis and learned a very sad piece of news. Great Britain, too, has lost one of its crewmen. With the disappearance of a man overboard from Penduik III en route to Rio from Tahiti, this is a fourth man lost to the sea. A hailstorm in the middle of the day resulted in the loss of the aerial of the automatic pilot, the second one I've lost since Sydney. It's outrageous that someone could actually manufacture and market such defective merchandise. In order to hold us steady on our course, I've hooked up the automatic pilot, but Manareva seems to be holding our own under reefed mainsail. It is good to know that she is. I've been in touch with Grand Louis, which is running a magnificent race. André Vian, the skipper, asked me to pass on news from all the crew to their wives. I then spoke to Shea Blythe, captain of Great Britain too, to express my sympathy. At midnight, just as it was supposed to be Thursday, January 10th, it became Wednesday, January 9th again, We've just crossed 180 degrees east and west, the international dateline, that is to say, the opposite of Greenwich Meridian. Thus, we've gained a day, or lost a day, according to one's viewpoint. On this new January the 9th, I have the heart-rending task of being one link in a communication chain, relaying messages of sympathy and condolence to Great Britain too. One message was a telegram from Maureen Blythe to her husband, the captain, whose feelings can only be imagined. I called Clemency during the evening. My mother was alone at home and, after giving her my position, I promised to continue playing it safe. I told her that the sea was quite calm and assured her that I would follow a course on latitude sufficiently high to avoid rough weather. It is not hard to guess how she must feel when she hears of a tragedy like that which has befallen Great Britain. I could not resist saying almost anything that would reassure her a bit. Thursday, January the 10th. I stayed in bed quite late this morning, until 0900 in fact, and then I had a leisurely day in the agreeable company of Manon de Sources. It was the end of the afternoon before I knew it, with a sunset of reds that foretells troubles to come. I hauled down the mizzen, just in case. Toward midnight, the mainsail was violently torn from the mast and the halyards and slides broken. To pick up the mainsail is a task that I would not wish on my worst enemy. I did it, but at the end of the operation... I was out of breath and weak as a kitten. All I can do is furl it on the deck and wait for better days. The breaking of the halyards and slides worries me. This 40-knot wind is far from being a storm, and moreover, I had taken two reefs in the sail. It seems to me that a mainsail should be able to stand more strain than that. I've run at the mizzen, but we are not moving at more than three knots. Friday, January the 11th. Manareva is taking a beating this morning. We will heave to for a few hours and drift, then get underway with only the jib. I am taking advantage of this downtime to finish reading L'Officer Sans Nom. I've never before done so much reading at sea as I am now. It's very rough outside, and I've battened down the boat completely. Suddenly, as I was watching safely from inside my cosmonaut's bubble, I saw a gigantic wall of green water rise from nowhere. When it struck, we were tossed about like a piece of straw, my heart jumped into my throat, my knees felt weak, and a shout escaped my lips. My God! 
it was half exclamation and half prayer. Between waves, heaven sometimes seems very close. An instinctive prayer rises and is articulated as a cry which serves to soothe and reassure, particularly in those circumstances when there is nothing left to do but turn to the only being who can control the elements. Our most beautiful prayers are born at sea, not only because at sea we are like lost children, asking for protection, but because when an incredible night offers us the beauties of the heavens, when a simple and yet grandiose sunset displays its splendor for us, and when nature's most spectacular displays are paraded for our benefit alone, our hearts rise, almost in spite of ourselves, in a hymn of praise and gratitude. In my second week out of Sydney, I covered only 1,119 nautical miles for an average of 154 miles a day. Surely I can do better than that. A quick look back at the past two weeks for a satisfactory explanation. It is true that, entering the Tasman Sea, Manoreva was doing 18 knots. It is also true that the wind was strong, but not too strong, and that life was beautiful. Yet problems came up to send everything awry, changes in course and in sail, daily struggles with a generator, navigational problems, and finally, winds that die down and leave us in the middle of nowhere. What I need is more or less normal conditions and the chance to make up for the past few days. I feel a great tension in my guts and I have a feeling that it won't go away until I've rounded Cape Horn. Saturday, January the 12th. This has not been a good day. It was a day of fog and of various troubles. I was busy the whole time, doing chores here and there and trying to figure out why I had not heard anything about the race. It was several hours before I discovered that the radio antenna was broken. And then my generator is on the blink again, which means more hours of work, looking, screwing and unscrewing, unbolting and bolting, and of course, burning out fuses. Finally, I hauled down the mizzen, the reaching jib, and ran up only the running jib. We are navigating on automatic pilot. Sunday, January 13th. It seems that I'm in for a new round with the generator. I noticed that there were water and bubbles in the motor oil, and I have drained the motor. But how did the water get there? I've rigged up a new aerial, the third one, for the automatic pilot. Since the sea is still rough, I'm using only the light Genoa. I'm going to run up the mizzen, reefed, of course. Fortunately, I've been able to contact Claude, who suggested a new series of operations on the generator. First, I must check the valves and determine the rate of exhaust. Claude was as worried as I over the water in the motor, and he suggested that I seal the ventilators shut whenever they are not actually in use. This means that I must set to work once more to make wooden covers for them. Grand Louis is now at 57 degrees south, and today encountered her first iceberg. The temperature on the bridge is 34 Fahrenheit. Grand Louis is moving at 8 knots despite a contrary wind, and she is 2,400 miles from Cape Horn. Icebergs are the nightmare of my solitude. If I venture too close to the ice zone, I will have to stay awake 24 hours a day, a problem that does not occur when there is a crew of several men to divide the day into watches. The ice zone, of course, varies according to the time of year and the longitude. Toward the 120 degree meridian, it goes up to 47 degrees south, while at Cape Horn, it's at 57 degrees. In any event, in such areas where it is often foggy, these detached mountains of ice floating northward for considerable distances before melting are a constant hazard to all vessels. 
Some of them are indeed the size of mountains, although the one sighted by Grand Louis was relatively small, 100 feet high and about 335 feet wide. But if I strike even a small one, then it's goodbye Cape Horn. I confess that I would like to see an iceberg to admire its magnificent glacial colours running through all the whites and blues and into the greys. On this trip, however, I will gladly forego that pleasure. Yet, willy-nilly, there will come a time at the moment of passing Cape Horn when I will have to venture to within 56 miles of the ice. Navigation is particularly difficult there at this time of year because it is summer in the southern hemisphere, which means that the icebergs have already separated from the mother ice and begun their ominous journey. For the moment, therefore, I am staying farther north than most of the boats in the Whitbread. My route is longer than theirs, but safer. Since I left Sydney, my feelings about the first stage have changed considerably. There were times in the Indian Ocean when it occurred to me that I might be about to die and that I was leaving nothing behind except perhaps a few memories. By nothing I mean no one. When the final tallies are drawn up on a person's life, records have very little weight. The ocean, yawning like a black pit into which a sailor can disappear forever, makes me think for the first time of leaving something of myself which, if I should die, would continue to live after me. Therefore, while in Sydney I discussed with Teora the possibility of having a child. The prospect is a frightening one, but Teora and I will do as well as we can. Now I know, as I approach Cape Horn, that I am no longer alone in the same way. I have another boat to captain, a boat carrying all those that I have tamed, as the fox says in The Little Prince. To tame means, in a sense, to create bonds, and my own bonds now bind me to a bit more prudence than perhaps I've shown in the past. There are times when I have to know where not to go, because I have now made an obligation to return home. It's a bit like having respect for one's own existence, but it is much more like accepting the responsibility for one's affections. We are responsible for the feelings that others have for us. That is why I would like to wait luck in my favour as much as I can, for the sake of the ones who, in a sense, are sailing with me. Now I always buckle on my safety harness, grudgingly, perhaps, because it takes time and also because it's not very comfortable. I am no longer alone, and as I move toward the cape, my steps are more careful, which is not to say that I have any intention of dragging it out. There is a difference between taking a foot off the accelerator and applying the brake, a margin of which I must become aware. Monday, January the 14th. I am continuing to work on the generator, checking everything, removing and then replacing every part. Grand Louis and Critter are at 57 South and are now sailing in the ice zone, surrounded by flows and even by icebergs in a temperature of 32 Fahrenheit. 33 Export put out from Sydney only a few days ago and has asked me to ask Grand Louis and Critter for their working frequencies, the times and days for radio contact and their positions. In the 18 days since we left Sydney, I have become a sort of weatherman for the boats in the Whitbread. Every day, I give the boats a very complete report on the Pacific, winds, fronts, etc. I'm able to do so because I'm lucky enough to have a decoder for meteorological charts, a really extraordinary security tool. It's a kind of teletype which prints isobars, fronts, high and low pressure areas, ice charts and wave heights, analyses and 72-hour forecasts. It would be an extremely useful instrument for the Whitbread boats to have, 
except that the rules of the race prohibit it. During the 1972 transatlantic, since I was aware that I was neither Tarzan nor Superman, I arranged to have this unit aboard with the thought that it would be very useful in helping me choose my route and select my sail. After the race, I was imprudent enough to admit that it had indeed been of some help, whereupon the English adopted a regulation forbidding its use, and the 1976 transatlantic was run without the participants being allowed to decode the meteorological charts. I have every intention of respecting this regulation, but, as I have already stated and written, the regulation, in my opinion, is arbitrary and meaningless. Why not forbid the use of the chronometer and bring back the hourglass? Surely it is not a superfluous precaution to find out where there is a storm that may sink your boat. Even with that knowledge, it is up to the sailor to know how to handle his boat in the storm. It is true that the cost of this equipment is high, and also that many boats do not have adequate room for it, but the fact remains that security should be the prime consideration in such matters. Tuesday, January 15th. Good weather has returned, and during the afternoon, I ran up the Jenicas. After hauling down the mizzen, I engaged in a rather precarious bit of gymnastics, hanging from the starboard pontoon to recover the spinnaker sheet, an operation that delayed lunch until five o'clock. I had a six-minute contact with RTL through Sunley Radio, long enough to submit a report. The accident with the mainsail, the hours spent lying to, the water in the generator, the loss of the antenna, and the position of Grand Louis and Critter in the ice, and now adventure has just joined them. Wednesday, January 16th, a beautiful starlit night. Then at 0300 hours, just as the wind was slacking a bit, the halyard of the port Jenica snapped. This, of course, entailed a series of problems. First, I had to recover the sail and get back on course. Then I ran up the mizzen and had to brace about to get underway again. Finally, there were the jibooms to haul aboard. The meridian has our position at 48 degrees 30 minutes south and 149 degrees 20 minutes west. I am one day behind Second Life, but four behind Critter, Grand Louis and Sayula too. I'm going to have to work if I want to get around the horn before the end of the month. To test my good resolutions, I decided to take a certain amount of trouble with my lunch. Lately, I've sort of drifted into potluck lunches, eating pretty much anything that I lay my hands on. Nightfall found me in a meditative lyric mood. How huge the ocean is, I wrote in my log. It is night, and my running lights are on, for my own sake more than anything else. It is a ridiculously insignificant spot of brightness atop the mainmast, tracing arabesques on the dark expanses of the immense sea. It is only a pinpoint of light, but it is a symbol of life and faith. In the middle of the sea, there is a light dancing above the waves, dancing and lightening the way for a solitary sailor. I'm like a child tonight, and the sea enfolds me. I think it's time for me to go to bed. Thursday, January 17th. Rough seas, fog, drizzle, but high morale aboard because I'm going to talk to Teora today. At 0600, the halyards broke for the third time in less than three weeks. Very high breakage, but such things seem unimportant when I'm waiting to talk to the other half of myself. I begin trying to raise Mahina radio at 1100, and in passing caught the weather report from Canberra. But nothing from Mahina. Nothing, in fact, for several hours. It was not until 1700 hours and through Sunli radio that I was able to pick up a few words from my friend relayed from Honolulu. 
I was so pleased that I've arranged for another contact tomorrow at noon, hoping for clearer reception. I crossed 50 degrees south at noon today, and we are now at the extreme limit of the ice area. I must keep my eyes open. To celebrate my somewhat frustrating contact with Tiura, I had a dish of boiled potatoes, the caviar of the open sea. It also helped me forget about the fog and drizzle. The barometer seems to be in freefall. What next? This evening, I had a kind of round-table chat with Critter and Gran Louie. Taranga joined in and reported that she is also beginning to encounter icebergs. Together, we tried to figure out what kind of weather lies ahead. Shortly before midnight, the wind shifted violently to the southwest and gained a speed of between 40 and 50 knots, breaking the clue of the Genoa as though the grommet were made of glass instead of steel. I managed to get the Genoa under control and to send up the running jib, but Manareva took a few more nasty turns before a thoroughly drenched and chastened collar prudently hauled down the mizzen. Friday, January 18th. The sea was so rough and we were rolling so violently that I was obliged to let Manareva run before the wind. Even so, the crosswinds were very dangerous and, since I now have a new problem with the automatic pilot, I had to stay on watch under the bubble. I've lost the line of the pilots and because of the impact of the waves, the instrument is out of kilter. Probably the screws loosened and caused the aerial to jam the pilot so that we tended to swing into the wind. I secured the pilot as best I could as I had done off the Cape of Good Hope in 1972. I also rigged up some halyards between the bubble and the tiller, regretting all the while that I can't use the wheel because it needs repairs that I haven't yet had time to do. There are now gusts of 60 knots and it is absolutely essential that Manoreva's stern be kept into the gigantic waves that occasionally manage to hit us broadside with a deafening roar. The meridian has my position at 49 degrees 50 minutes south. Grand Louis, Critter and CSNRB are at 60 degrees south. The other boats are not much farther north. The barometer now stands at 29. I've never seen it that low before. We are healing at a frightening angle and I feel absolutely helpless under my bubble. Nonetheless, I do what I can to keep Manareva's stern to the waves. I've had to haul down the jib two or three times to close the hanks that somehow came open on their own. Our heel has suddenly gone from frightening to terrifying under the impact of an incredible wall of water that struck us from the south-southwest. I feel the same kind of deep down anxiety that I did in the Indian Ocean and I've decided to run up the storm jib then jibe and head northeast. Fortunately, I was able to raise Critter and Grand Louis, which was a boost to my morale. It has been quite a day, and I will not soon forget it. This week's figures are better. 1,367 miles from meridian to meridian, which, with a total of 3,525 miles, raises my average to 168 miles per day. Just a bit more effort. Saturday, January 19th. At two o'clock in the morning, completely exhausted, I took advantage of a calming trend to get to bed. I wore new pyjamas and I took a hot water bottle with me just to keep in touch with the good things in life. Despite the sea, which was still quite rough, I slept the sleep of the just until 11am. My schedule obviously is all awry and I did not have lunch until six o'clock in the evening. I think that I'm about 2,600 miles from Cape Horn. No doubt I am too far north, following the depressions. Even so, I prefer to be a selective masochist with respect to my special northern route. 
It seems to me that I am better off being tossed around by the wind as long as it doesn't get out of hand and staying on watch 24 hours a day because of icebergs. I've made a definite choice between option wind and option iceberg. I called my family to relax a bit after my exhausting bout with the weather, but I was able to give them only an approximate position, 49 south and 134 west. I've been navigating by estimate for the past three days, since the sextant is totally useless and is resting undisturbed in its box, awaiting an improvement in the weather. Sunday, January 20th. Thank God it's Sunday. I like to take a holiday on Sundays, the sea permitting. Today, the weather is cloudy, and I spent part of my time bailing. I did, however, take a break for tea, accompanied by British biscuits. Later, I finished untangling the mainsail halyard and then climbed the mast to rig a new halyard. Climbing the mast is not the chore that it was before reaching Sydney since, while in port, I had steps welded onto it. Nonetheless, once I was up there, it was long, hard work and my arm was numb by the time I finished. I was back on deck before I realised that there was not enough lead weight to bring the halyard down, so it was stuck midway. I had to start all over again after a short rest, and this time I used a heavier weight than usual. Unfortunately, this problem means that there are a number of steel cables swinging loose overhead between the rigging halyard and the spinnaker pulley which is hanging loose. From now on, I'll have to wear a hard hat when working at the foot of the mast. At midnight, I finally let us go with the wind a bit. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.